All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get started, and I am very happy that we are going to be looking at the silver chair, uh, so I hope that you will enjoy it half as much as I already have. Does anybody have any idea what this music is? Nope. So it is, this is the opening part of Gustav Holst's The Planets Suite, and so we are going to be talking a little bit about that uh, as we get into things here. Uh, but before we do any of that, uh, let me begin us with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for the gift of this book, The Silver Chair, and for all of the things that we can learn from it about your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would give us new insight, and that it would not just be knowledge to store up, but that it would be something that transforms the way that we live and enables us to follow you, Lord Jesus, more closely. For we pray all of these things for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. So we are going to be in the silver chair for a while. So just be prepared. As I've started working on I realized I could probably teach on this book for a year. Um, we are not going to do that. But um, some people thought we were doing the silver chair for one week. We're going to do the whole thing in one week. Um, no. So uh, just to make sure that you realize that. Uh, the other thing that's important is that it would be helpful if you had a copy of the book and if you read it. Um, that being said, that being said, we are still having our three levels of engagement. You can be on the beach, which means you just come to class. You don't read anything. You don't pick up any handouts. You just sort of absorb the rays while you're here. That is perfectly fine. I'm happy to have you under those conditions. Uh, but if you want to snorkel, that also is good, where you skim some, read some, read whatever handouts you feel like reading. Or if you do the full measure and scuba dive, um, we're going to have some wonderful handouts and some extra book recommendations uh, that will be coming along. So whichever of those floats your boat. Uh, it's good. I would encourage you to try to read ahead a little bit of where we are in class so that you're prepared for it. Do you want us to bring our copies? Um, bring your copy with you. It's not necessary, but I think it may help. You may want to, like, star things or underline or whatever. Um, and the other thing somebody's asked me is, um, does it mean something that all these silver chair books have different covers from different editions? It doesn't matter. So the text is all the same. Um, there's something curious about that we're going to talk about in a minute, though. So um, looking at this, the original dust jacket of the silver chair is over here. And you'll see on this side uh, the uh, what I think of as the 70s cover, uh, which makes it seem very action-packed with the big explosion. And you will notice prominently on that it says Book 4 in the Chronicles of Narnia. But you will see in my notes, which of course are more to be trusted than any others, uh, it says book six of the Chronicles of Narnia. So the Silver Chair was first published in 1953. 
with illustrations by the estimable Pauline Baines. Pauline Baines, we could do a whole course on her. She was really good friends with Tolkien. Uh, fascinating story. A really phenomenally gifted artist. And Lewis loved her work so much that he engaged her to do the illustrations for all of the Chronicles of Narnia and the original cover designs. So this is the original cover for the Silver Chair. Um, all of the Chronicles of Narnia are dedicated to children. Almost all of them are children of Lewis's friends, the Inklings. Um, this particular one is dedicated to Nicholas Hardy, who was 11 years old at the time, uh, the son of Colin Hardy, who is one of the Inklings that we've talked about. Uh, and the great question, the great debate, uh, which isn't really a debate because I already told you the answer, is, is it just really a great children's story? Because it is a great children's story. There's a lost prince that they set out on a quest to rescue. And if you've ever read it to a seven-year-old, they're totally mesmerized by it. And they love it. And they want to go back and read it again. Or is it at a long fictional reworking of Plato's allegory of the cave? And also pointing to the ontological argument developed by Anselm of Canterbury in the 12th century and then built upon by Descartes and then more recently Alvin Plantinga. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Or is it a parable that is particularly applicable in 21st century American culture about the importance of truth with capital T, that is absolute truth. And of course, the answer is, if you've read anything that I've put out there about this class, is it is all of these. And that is part of what makes it such a work of genius, because a seven-year-old can read it and have no idea about any of the rest of that, and it works beautifully. Or somebody that has a doctorate in philosophy can read it and see exactly what Lewis is trying to do with his philosophical and apologetics arguments. Or someone who is a theologian can read it and look at what Lewis is saying about the importance of the gospel, the importance of truth with a capital T, and why it is vitally important that the church stand against relativism. So it is, it is uh, way cool, shall we say. Um, and I do want to just recap to put this in context of the Inklings and their work. And remember this focus that we've had on this verse of the Inklings being so deliberate about trying to live this out. So I want us to say this together as we do each week. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We live in a world that wants to drag our focus away to the tawdry, to the evil, to the ugly, and one of the things you see with the Inklings that's so remarkable is their determined focus on truth, beauty, and goodness and the things of the kingdom. We talked about the Inklings uh, being radical in their day because they were an academic group in one sense, but they also were very unabashedly 
Christian, which was just as radical back then as it is today. And so this emphasis on trying to mount a countercultural offensive to some of the currents that they saw that they were concerned about and what the fruit of those currents would be, um, that yielded amazing fruit. And part of that fruit is the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis has said he would never have written the Chronicles of Narnia without the Inklings, particularly without Tolkien. And so you think about what if that friendship hadn't happened? What a loss it would be to this world. So um, we're going to be covering a lot of stuff tonight. So if if you... Get a little bit lost, don't worry, because I'll send it to you in the email and you can, you can catch back up. But I want to just give you a little bit of background about the origins of Narnia. Where did all of this come from? And the first thing that we know that's sort of a precursor to Narnia is in 1907, way back when, Lewis wrote a letter to his brother Warney that he was writing a book a History of Mouseland, uh, which eventually they combined with Warney's love of India to form the imaginary realm of Boxen, uh, whose main characters are dressed and talking animals. Lewis developed a history of Boxen and a political structure for it. Now, Lewis, in 1907, was nine years old. Now, I'm sure all of you were writing histories of other imaginary worlds when you were nine years old. Um, Then in 1914, Lewis had this vivid image come into his mind of a fawn standing in a snowy wood with an umbrella and some packages. And he made a little sketch, and that just stuck in his mind. He was 16 But it just stuck in his mind. Remember, Lewis is an atheist at this point. Then, 1939, way later, after Lewis's conversion, after he's a professor at Oxford, and then all of this build-up to World War II that we've been talking about in here for those that were here before, um, the day before Britain declares war on Germany, the first uh, children evacuees arrive to live with Lewis. So Lewis has four children living with him, sometimes three, sometimes four, all the way through World War II, through all the other stuff he's doing, traveling around, talking to the RAF, preaching, teaching a full load at Oxford, doing the Mere Christianity broadcast in London, and he's got four children. And one of the things that happened in 1939 is with that first group of four children, he started telling them stories. And he started writing down a story, and the story that he started writing down was because he was so disturbed by how dull their imaginations were. He felt like they were not like real children. They were too much like drones. So he was going to do something about that, and the way he was going to do something was to tell them stories. So he started writing down one of the stories, and so in this story, there are four children, Anne, Martin, Rose, and Peter, who are sent away from London because of the air raids and sent to stay with a very old professor in the country. So that sounds very familiar, but he didn't do anything with that. It just sort of sat there for a couple of years. And then in 1947, something happened. We're not quite sure what, but he had been thinking about this in the last part of the war, and he talks about the story... Um, when he was about 40, that he decided to go back and pick up the threads of that story and think about 
what it might look like. And I love the way he says this, but then suddenly Aslan came bounding into it. I think I'd been having a good many dreams of lions about that time. Once he was there, he pulled the whole story together. And then uh, from a letter, and this is, we could go on a whole rabbit trail about Lewis's letters, especially Lewis's letters to children. There's a beautiful volume that is Lewis's letters to children that's not easy to find, but boy, would I commend it to you. Um, It is amazing to read, and he answered every letter he got, including letters from children. And I think I've told you all before, um, our friend Kathy Keller, um, who's married to Tim Keller, wrote Lewis when she was a little girl, when she wasn't yet a Christian, and he wrote her back, and there was a little correspondence, and she was converted to Christianity through reading the Chronicles of Narnia when she was about 13, which is really cool. But this letter was to a fifth-grade class in Maryland, and he said, I did not say to myself, let us represent Jesus as he really is in our world by a lion in Narnia. I said, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia and that the Son of God, as he became a man in our world, became a lion there, and then imagine what would happen. So it's a, it's a really beautiful thing. And when you look at these letters to children, you see sometimes he makes little drawings in them, and um, they're just amazing to read. Uh, but Lewis was extremely passionate and opinionated about children's stories. That might not surprise you, uh, but I love both of these quotations. He says, a children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's story in the slightest. Or, no book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally and often far more worth reading at the age of 50 and beyond. And Lewis himself talked about how influenced he was by children's literature. Uh, One of his favorite stories was The Wind of the Willows. And his whole concept of the numinous, um, that idea of sort of the, the fear and awe that's tinged with joy about things that are beyond the walls of this world, comes from Kenneth Graham's descriptions in The Wind in the Willows. He also loved Beatrix Potter, and he talked about how he remembered when he was reading Squirrel Nutkin when he was little, the idea of autumn, and how the idea of autumn and that the beauty of autumn, but the sense of death that comes with autumn, that there was just this poignancy that came from that. I'm not going to go off on that. Uh, But these are some illustrations that Lewis did, mostly around the age of 10. I'm sure we were all drawing like that with perspective and shading and everything when we were 10 years old. Uh, But there are literally hundreds of these, pictures of animals, of parties, of cityscapes, and mouse land and boxen and uh, an incredibly fertile imagination. And then this, probably the most iconic of the Narnia illustrations, uh, where Lewis said she just got this exactly right. It was like she had read his mind. Um, But there's this wonderful uh, letter that Pauline Baines, the illustrator, wrote to Lewis's secretary, Walter Cooper, Uh, in 1967, a couple of years after Lewis's death. And I want to just read this to you. C.S. Lewis told me that he had actually gone into a bookshop, Blackwell's in Oxford, and asked the assistant there if she could recommend someone who could draw children and animals. 
I don't know whether he was just being kind to me and making me feel I was more important than I was, or whether he'd simply heard about me from his friend Tolkien. Lewis was the most kindly and tolerant of authors, who seemed happy to leave everything in my completely inexperienced hands. Once or twice, I queried the sort of character he had in mind, as with Puddleglum, and then he replied, but otherwise he made no remarks or criticisms. I had rather the feeling that having got the story written down and out of his mind, that the rest was someone else's job, and he wouldn't interfere. (laughs) But it's a beautiful thing to look at these illustrations, and I would encourage you, if you have a copy that's not illustrated, try to buy a copy uh, that has Pauline Bain's illustrations. They're not very expensive. You can get used ones on Amazon, um, and they, they definitely are worth it. So a little background before we get to the silver chair, because there's some characters that show up earlier uh, who are important. And just in the background of how Narnia started, the first book that Lewis wrote was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The next book that he wrote was Prince Caspian. The next book that he wrote was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The next book that he wrote was The Silver Chair. Then he wrote The Horse and His Boy. Then he wrote (coughs) The Magician's Nephew. And then he wrote The Last Battle. Now, the trick is that The Magician's Nephew even though it's written later, is chronologically the first is what today we would call a prequel. Lewis would hate that word. (laughs) Uh, But that's what it is. It sort of sets up uh, all of the framework of Narnia. And there is this huge battle among Lewis scholars who clearly should be focusing on things that are more important about (laughs) what order Lewis really wanted you to read these in. And they they have evidence on both sides. So there's a letter to a little girl where she said she liked reading them in the order of the chronology of Narnia rather than the order he had written them. And he said, that's fine. And so there's one kid who's like, see, this is what he wanted. And then there's a whole other group that said, no, 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 it's the gradual reveal And the gradual reveal makes it all so much richer, which is why this is either book six or book four, uh, depending on which camp you find yourself aligned with. The other thing that is remarkable about these stories, and by the way, Tolkien was not a huge fan of the Narnia stories. He um, thought that there were things that were disturbingly, in his mind, thrown together. Now... (laughs) Part of that is because Tolkien took forever to do anything, and he just couldn't stand that Lewis could write so quickly. But if you've observed all of the things that we've studied by Lewis thrown together in C.S. Lewis, that doesn't really work very well. And one of Tolkien's biggest objections was Father Christmas showing up in the middle of the line, The Witch and the Wardrobe. And he, he railed about this. So you can't mix up your myths like that. What is the matter with you? But scholars have puzzled over this, and they puzzled over the organizational scheme. And then a few years back, there's a brilliant scholar named Michael Ward who studied at Oxford and Cambridge and then was, at, uh, was an Anglican priest converted to Catholicism uh, and became part of Blackfriars at Oxford And as he read and studied, 
he was also an expert on the medieval world, which we've talked about in this class. Lewis was so fascinated by. And he came up with this radical theory and then started researching it. And sure enough, as he researched with this theory and framework in mind, he discovered something that had eluded scholars for all of the history of the Chronicles of Narnia that he read about in Planet Narnia, which is a semi-scholarly book. And if that's too much for you, the Narnia Code. If you're scuba diving, I would really encourage you to get one or the other of these. But basically, what Michael Ward discovered, and I agree with him, not everybody agrees with him, but I do agree with him, is that Lewis took the seven planets of the medieval cosmology, the sun, the moon, which were thought of as planets, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn. And the theme of that planet matches one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Each of the books matches all of the medieval ideas about that particular planet. And it is, once you see that framework and learn a little bit about the medieval planets and then reread them, your jaw will drop. I mean, it is amazing. But it is, again, there's a wonderful essay where Lewis talks about, uh, it's called Meditation in a Tool Shed, where he talks about the difference between seeing a beam of light when you see a light that comes through a chink um, and looking at the light, little decimotes and everything, or looking along that light to see what the light reveals. It's two different ways of seeing. And he reveled in sort of hiding things in plain sight. Um, so we could have a whole thing about that. We're not going to do. But anyway, it's really cool. Which story was Father Christmas intruding in? Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. So um, given all of that, a couple of these uh, background notes. Aslan is from the Turkish word for lion. Um, he's introduced in the first book as the son of the emperor beyond the sea. And uh, there's this great passage when the children are hiding out with the beavers um, in their little house at the beaver dam in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And this is one scene that I think the movie makers did a really good job with. I think they get it just right. Uh, and he says um, in that, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays. <laughs> Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And there are all of these just beautiful descriptions of Aslan um, that go in these earlier works. And so Aslan, anybody that's familiar with Narnia uh, would be very familiar with him by the time they get to the silver chair. And then Caspian is another important character here. So Prince Caspian is the rightful heir to the throne of Narnia. And so in the first book, uh, when the children come, uh, there is 
Narnia time and Earth time don't match up very well. Narnia time goes way faster, but it's not like there's a particular ratio. Sometimes it goes really faster. Sometimes it goes somewhat faster. You just don't really know. So there's a whole thing Lewis is playing with in God's time versus man's time, which is a whole other thing we're not going to talk about. Uh, but when the Pevensey children, Lucy, Susan, Edmund, Peter, go into Narnia, when they come back the second time, Prince Caspian is the main character. And what's happened is when they come, they come back into Narnia because Queen Susan's horn that she was given by Father Christmas is blown and they're sucked out of a train station in London right back to Narnia, except it's 1,300 years later and their castle that they lived in is a ruin. And then they discover that the Narnians, whom they loved so much, are being oppressed by these evil people, and the right, the rightful heir, Prince Caspian, um, is being held essentially captive as a boy by his uncle Miraz, who is a really evil king. But Caspian has the good fortune, um, well, I won't go off on that, <laughs> to have Dr. Cornelius as his tutor. And Dr. Cornelius is actually an old Narnian. He's a dwarf. And he and the nursemaid tell Caspian all about Narnia. But the party line at the castle and throughout the country is Narnia is a myth. It's all made up. Aslan never existed. Does this sound like the Jesus seminar? Um, So Aslan never existed. There's no such thing as talking animals. All of this stuff is just fairy tales. And people that believe that are stupid. So you need to just be progressive and forget all that. But Caspian, as a boy, is captivated by all of this. Well, Dr. Cornelius finds out that Miraz, Miraz and his wife have been trying to have a child. And when they give birth to a son, Caspian's life is forfeit. And Dr. Cornelius rushes him out of the palace and takes him out into the woods, and he sees these Narnians. And he's blown away because even though he's heard about them, and sort of believed he didn't really, and then he's confronted with their flesh and blood existence. And they bring out Queen Susan's horn, this relic from 1,300 years ago, and he blows it, and then all of a sudden it sucks these people from England back. So they have all these adventures, and um, Caspian becomes the rightful king. It's all beautiful. But then, a little while later, Uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader story happens. And Edmund and Lucy, the younger children, are staying uh, with what they call their odious cousin, (laughs) Eustace Scrub. And they are magically summoned back to Narnia because they're looking at a painting of a Narnian ship. And the painting comes to life. And the water starts coming out of the frame. And they're sucked into it. And they're swimming for their lives. And when they go there, Caspian is an adult, and he is um, sailing to the Far Isles looking for the seven lost lords of Narnia and for Aslan's country. So Caspian is somebody that they're very close to. And then Eustace Scrub. Eustace Scrub. Say that out loud. It's such a great onomatopoetic word here. And Eustace is one of the principal characters in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader as the odious cousin. And in England, not so much in our country, but in England, 
the word scrub is a major insult. And if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, you will find in the third definition, an insignificant or contemptible person or a player not among the best or most skillful. That's good, polite English speak. Uh, But being a scrub is like the lowest of the low. And Eustace uh, Lewis starts off the Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, with these words. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. (laughs) And in their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card. He liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. Eustace Clarence disliked his cousins, the Pevensies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, but he was quite glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy were coming to stay. Deep down... Inside him, he liked bossing and bullying, and though he was a puny little person who couldn't stand up even to Lucy, let alone Edmund in a fight, he knew that there are dozens of ways to give people a bad time if you are in your own home and they are only visitors. I'm trying to think of a limerick, said Eustace, something like this. Some kids who played games about Narnia got gradually balmier and balmier. (laughs) And it goes on, and I'd love to read you the whole description of Eustace, because by the time Lewis gets finished with this description, you think, I'd kill this kid. <laughs> I mean, and the worst thing is they end up on a ship with him. One of the things all of us in Charleston knows is that when you're on a boat, you're stuck with the people that you're on the boat with. And Eustace complains about everything. Everything. He has the most ginormous chip on his shoulder you could ever imagine. And he is just horrible. Horrible to his host, horrible to his cousins, mean, spiteful, nasty, whining, just horrible. Useless. Yes, useless, exactly. And so finally, and he also is incredibly greedy. He is the most narcissistic, amoral person. Ever. He is a great figure for what our culture is likely to produce these days. But what happens in the story is that they are on this island, and Eustace stumbles into a dragon horde. And he's so excited because Don't they're... Tell everything. <laughs> this is not in the silver chair. This is the other story. So he stumbles into the dragon horde, and he sees all of these beautiful things. He's like, oh, it's all for me. It's all for me. And so he starts putting all of this jewelry all over himself. And then all of a sudden he realizes his arm is really hurting. And he looks down, and his arm is all scaly. And he can't figure out what happened. And eventually he realizes that he has turned into a dragon. So he has turned into a dragon, and he is miserable, and he doesn't know what to do, and this is the first time 
because he was spoiled rotten by his parents. He's ever had to rely on himself. He doesn't know what to do. He flies round and round, and to make a long story short, um, the people on the ship finally realize it's him. They have pity on him. They are kind to him. And it finally begins to pierce through, oh, maybe I am a spiteful little jerk. (laughs) And so over time, he starts realizing, oh, I have really not been a good person. Well, then he encounters Aslan. And Aslan speaks to him, and he has a sort of what we would call a metanoia, repentance moment, a change of mind, a change of heart. And Aslan tells him that the only way he can learn how to be a boy again is to undress. And so he's confused because he doesn't really have on clothes. And he thinks, oh, shed my dragon skin like dragons do. So he sheds the outer layer, and Aslan's like, no, 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 you have to shed all of it. And Eustace says, I don't know how, and Aslan says, let me help you. And Aslan takes his claw, and Eustace knows pain like he has never known before, and it goes on and on, and there are multiple layers, and finally, the last of the dragon skin is gone, and then Aslan says, your only hope is for me to dress you. And so Aslan then dresses him and then presents him back to the other children. And he actually, Eustace actually apologizes. Um, He begins to change. And for the rest of the story, you see him. And that's one of the great things. He's still a little bit of a scrub. (laughs) Um, He's not perfect, but you can see he's trying and that Aslan is working on him. So that's kind of where... Um, the story is. And at the very end, the last paragraph says, back in our own world, everyone started saying how Eustace had improved and how you'd never know him for the same boy, everyone except Aunt Alberta, who said he had become very commonplace and tiresome, and it must have been the influence of those Pevensey children. (laughs) So that's sort of the background. So Okay, so we're going to talk about five themes that are introduced in chapter one, or at least we're going to try to. And part of what is so great about this book is that Lewis is bringing in a lot of different things, um, and he also is setting the stage for a phenomenal page-turner tale. Uh, But he has some great comments about experiment house and education. Uh, He also does something very interesting that the protagonist of this story are outcasts, and the first protagonist is an outcast girl. Now, this is England in the 1940s. Having your main character be a girl who is an outcast is radical. We're sort of used to that now because that's politically correct, but in the 1940s, that was very, very odd. And then the third thing is he shows again in this first chapter and makes a big deal about the fact that Eustace has been changed by Aslan. And then one of the most important things is there's this beautiful scene of deep vulnerability that happens that leads to real fellowship. And those of you that have been in Inklings class know that this is a theme we've seen before. And then the last part is this beautiful thing of when the children are calling Aslan, trying to escape from the bullies, 
and Aslan is calling them, and which is it? So Lewis plays with that a little bit. So uh, if you have read very much Lewis, you know that he has very, very strong opinions about education and schools, uh, heavily colored by his own largely terrible experiences in schools. He was especially leery of what was called progressive education, uh, which Experiment House is a perfect example of. And he believed it was based on faddish psychological studies that were designed to supplant classical education and, along with that, get rid of the Christian foundation of all learning. So his ideas on education are really fully developed in an essay called The Abolition of Man. Um, There's a little handout about that. And the novel That Hideous Strength. One of the things that's really cool is Lewis actually even tells us, he says, I wrote The Abolition of Man to describe the philosophy of what's going to happen if relativism happens and absolute truth goes down the drain. And then I portrayed it fictionally in That Hideous Strength. And he said That Hideous Strength is the fiction version of the Abolition of Man essay, which are both fabulous. But I just want to read you this little quotation. He says that the outcome of these trends that he saw with progressive education in the 30s and 40s would be relativism, the idea that there are no absolute truths leading to the decay of morality and a lack of virtue within society. Without a belief in and the teaching of universal moral laws, we fail to educate the heart and are left with intelligent men who behave like animals, or as Lewis puts it, men without chests. And I would submit that that is where we are right now. Um, That's a whole other discussion. Uh, But he has a lot of little comments in here to help you see what he's talking about. Uh, In the silver chair in this first chapter, Uh, He has one of the characters, or rather Lewis himself as the author says, when I was at school, one would have said, I swear by the Bible. But Bibles were not encouraged at Experiment House. And then there's this uh, little essay that I've quoted from here that I want to read you a little bit of. And it says, in the penultimate Narnia novel, The Silver Chair, we discover the kind of school which Eustace Scrubs' very advanced parents chose for their only child, Experiment House. This school's delicious illustration of the early days of progressive education in Britain when it was still confined to a very few private establishments that catered to the taste of the self-consciously forward-thinking middle classes and before it was inflicted on the masses following the 1967 Plowden Report. And that report sort of threw out the classical understanding of education. At Experiment House, discipline is lax and the school is terrorized by a vicious gang of bullies. The worst that might happen to the bullies is that they may be called into the headmistress' office for a long chat, after which they are more likely to be favored than punished. And then she talks about in this essay how when they go into Narnia and are called daughter of Eve and son of Adam, they don't know what it means. And as she says here, at Experiment House, you don't learn such things as the identity of Adam and Eve. In fact, the main thing you learn, and this is almost a quote, is how to survive the bully's reign of terror, either by hiding or usually by collaborating and informing on your friends. And so he's making a lot of points just in a very few paragraphs about 
this kind of education. And then the end of the story, and we'll come back to this later, but uh, the great thing is that Aslan and King Caspian come crashing in to Experiment House and chase down the headmistress. <laughs> and this is... Uh, yeah, it goes back to the story of you know, when Lewis was in boarding school as a 10-year-old right after his mother died, and he kept writing home saying, please take me out of here. The headmaster is crazy. This place is horrible. It's the pit of hell. And his father left him there, but then the government came and brought a straitjacket and took the headmaster <laughs> away and certified him as insane. So... Um, Lewis is reliving what he wished had happened uh, with this. So they come and they chase down the headmistress. And she is, I love the way he describes this. They, um, she isn't much good at being in charge of a school, so they get her a job as a school inspector. And when she turns out to be no good at that either, they get her into Parliament, where she lives happily ever after. Uh, but the little essay sums up, it's all there in 1953, a chaotic school with weak management and a curriculum which leaves pupils ignorant of even the most basic elements of their cultural heritage. But in 1953, you had to pay for the privilege of receiving such an education. The poor benighted masses had to wait another 14 years for enlightenment to dawn. But I would suggest to you that that is very similar to the way our education system is today. Um, Values-neutral education is a big thing. Um, there are um, very, very, very few schools that teach any kind of classical anything anymore. So relativism is the order of the day, and the idea of truth is uh, anathema. Now, and I'm sure you see this in media all the time, speak your truth, your truth. Everybody has their own truth. No such thing as an absolute truth that is a standard. So, um, moving to the outcast as protagonist and heroes, they ultimately will be the heroes of the story. Uh, we have this little girl crying behind a gym and this poignant opening to the story. And she's all alone. She's desperate. She's sad. She is hopeless. And this quotation, I think, is so beautiful. <coughs> Jill looked round and saw the dull autumn sky and heard the drip off the leaves and thought of all of the hopelessness of Experiment House. It was a 13-week term, and there were still 11 weeks to come. There is no despair like the despair of a junior high girl, and that is still true in our culture today. If you know a junior high girl, love on that child. She needs you. And then the bullies are referred to, honestly, as them, with a capital T, and the expectation at the school seems to be that one ought to spend all one's time sucking up to them and currying favor and dancing attendance upon them. And this is so current. You know, there's a lot of talk about bullying in schools today, but it still goes on. And social media has just added a whole other layer onto it. And here, because it's Experiment House, um, they don't use what Lewis calls Christian names. They only use their last names. So they refer to each other as pole and scrub. And uh, they are both terrified of them. And they shudder with fear at the thought of how they will torture the protagonist if they catch them. Imagine being in junior high and being scared, so terrified of other people in the school that you literally are shaking. 
And if you can imagine that, um, if you went to pretty much any school in Charleston County, private or public, in the junior high, you would find kids that are still having that experience today. Yet the amazing thing, and sorry, this is a little bit of a spoiler, uh, but these two, Eustace and Jill Pole, go on to become the incredible heroes of this adventure story. So Eustace is changed by Aslan, and there's this gorgeous dialogue uh, that I'm going to read a little bit of here. And Jill, when she's crying initially, waves off Eustace and thinks that he's come to taunt her as well. And then he speaks the truth to her. It's a sort of speaking the truth in love sort of moment. And he says, Pole, is that fair? Have I done anything of the sort this term? Didn't I stand up to Carter about the rabbit? And you can't even imagine what that might have been. <laughs> and didn't I keep the secret about Spivens under torture too? I'm sorry, Scrub, she said presently. I wasn't fair. You have done all that this term. Then wash out last term if you can, said Eustace. I was a different chap then. I was, gosh, what a little tick I was. <laughs> well, honestly, you were, said Jill. <laughs> you think there's been a change then, said Eustace. It's not only me, said Jill. Everyone's been saying so. They've noticed it. Eleanor Blakiston heard Adela Pennyfeather talking about it in our changing room yesterday. She said, someone's got hold of that scrub kid. He's quite unmanageable this term. We shall have to attend to him next. Eustace gave a shudder. Everyone at Experiment House knew what it was like being attended to by them. Someone had indeed got a hold of Eustace. It's Aslan, and Aslan has watched him and begun the transformation of him into a very different type of boy. He's not perfect, but he is far different than he was at the beginning of the last book. So this transformation is really important and something that is going to be very important in the story. And then the next theme, this vulnerability that leads to fellowship, this is such a beautiful moment. And I encourage you, read these stories slowly because it's easy to get caught up in the action and the narrative, and you miss there are these moments of beauty that are in there, and this is one of them. The bond that's forged between Eustace and Jill begins simply as the link of those that are united against common enemies. The enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Um, but what happens is that it eventually grows much deeper because Eustace takes this huge risk. He takes this huge risk by sharing the deepest secret of his heart with this other teenager whom he doesn't really know whether he can trust or not. And if you know anything about teenagers that age, information, especially secrets, if they are shared, are major social capital that you can use to rise up on the back of someone else to become more popular. Yet Eustace decides to make the choice to be vulnerable and shares his heart. And here's that dialogue that's so beautiful. Both children were quiet for a moment. The drops dripped off the laurel leaves. Why were you so different last term, said Jill presently. A lot of queer things happened to me in the holidays, said Eustace mysteriously. What sort of things, asked Jill. Eustace didn't say anything for quite a long time. Then he said, look here, Pole. You and I hate this place about as much as anybody can hate anything, don't we? 
I know I do, said Jill. Then I really think I can trust you. Damn good of you, said Jill. <laughs> Trying to be cool. <laughs> yes, but this is really a terrific secret poll. I say, are you good at believing things? I mean, things that everyone here would laugh at? I've never had the chance, said Jill, but I think I would be. Could you believe me if I said I'd been right out of the world, outside this world, last halls? I wouldn't know what you meant. Well, don't let's bother about that then. Supposing I told you I'd been in a place where animals can talk and where there are uh, enchantments and dragons and, well, all the sorts of things you have in fairy tales. Scrub felt terribly awkward as he said this and got red in the face. Now, can you imagine where that might have gone with the jeering laughter and her running to them and saying, look what I just heard from this idiot scrub, and all of them circling around and taunting him, calling him names, probably giving him a new nickname. It's a hugely risky thing. And especially for a boy who's maybe 12 or 13, hugely risky. And then, how did you get there, said Jill. She also felt curiously shy. The only way you can, by magic, said Eustace, almost in a whisper. I was with two cousins of mine. We were just whisked away. They'd been there before. Now that they were talking in whispers, Jill somehow felt it easier to believe. Then suddenly a horrible suspicion came over here, and she said so fiercely that for the moment she looked like a tigress. If I find you've been pulling my leg, I'll never speak to you again. Never, never, never. I'm not, said Eustace. I swear I'm not. I swear by everything. When I was at school, one would have said I swear by the Bible, but Bibles were not encouraged at Experiment House. All right, said Jill. I'll believe you. And tell nobody, what do you take me for? They were very excited as they said this. But when they had said it and Jill looked round and saw the dull autumn sky and heard the drip off the leaves and thought of all the hopelessness of Experiment House, it was a 13-week term and there were still 11 weeks to come. She said, but after all, what's the good? We're not there. We're here. And we jolly well can't get there, or can we? So think about if Eustace hadn't taken the risk to be vulnerable this relationship never would have happened. They never would have been called. Well, Aslan might have been calling, but they wouldn't have heard. So this vulnerability is key to the development of the story. All right. Brian, do you um, ever go back to him denying Narnia ever existed when he knew it did? Oh, that's Edmund. Oh, Edmund. That's Edmund, yes. Yes. No, but Edmund and Eustace have... Some character qualities in common. <laughs> yes, that's, that's what makes you think of that. No, no, so this last little part, calling Aslan or Aslan calling, and the interesting thing is we've got all these huge themes, and it's just this little dialogue that's just a couple of pages. That's what I've been wondering, said Eustace. When we came back from that place, someone said that the two Pevensey kids, my cousins, could never go there again. It was their third time, you see. I suppose they've had their share. But he never said I couldn't. Surely he would have said so, unless he meant I was to get back. And I can't help wondering, can we, could we? Do you mean do something to make it happen? Eustace nodded. You mean we might draw a circle on the ground and write in queer letters in it and stand inside it and recite charms and spells? 
Well, said Eustace after he'd thought hard about it for a bit, I believe that was the sort of thing I was thinking of, though I never did it. But now that it comes to the point, I have an idea that all those circles and things are rather rot. I don't think he'd like them. It would look as if we thought we could make him do things, but really we can only ask him. Could be a whole sermon right there. <laughs> Who is this person you keep talking about? They call him Aslan in that place, said Eustace. What a curious name, said Jill. Not half so curious as himself, said Eustace solemnly. But let's get on. It can't do any harm, just asking. Let's stand side by side like this, and we'll hold out our arms in front of us with the palms down, like they did in Ramandu's island. Whose island? <laughs> I'll tell you about that another time, and he might like us to face the east. Let's see. Where's the east? I've got it now. That's the east, facing up into the laurels. Now, will you say the words after me? What words? asked Jill. The words I'm going to say, of course, answered Eustace. Now. And he began, Aslan, 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 please let us two go into. And so then a whole series of events happened where the door, and we could have a whole thing on doors. Um, Lewis loved the verse in John's Gospel in the 10th chapter where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. And so you see over and over again in almost every one of the Chronicles of Narnia something about a door. And the door, there's always something bizarre about it. Um, but here, the door that's always locked in the wall of Experiment House opens, and they look through, and what they see on the other side of the door is not England. And so they go through, and they're caught up into Narnia. And crazy things happen that we'll talk a little bit about next week. And Jill ends up face-to-face with Aslan, the great lion. And she is scared out of her ever-loving mind. She thinks she's going to be eaten at any moment. And then the lion talks to her. And she is just completely undone by that. So there's this talk about tasks from Aslan. And so he says that he's called her for this task. And she says, please, what task, sir, said Jill, the task for which I called you and him here out of your own world. This puzzled Jill very much. It is mistaking me for someone else, she thought. She did not dare to tell the lion this, though she felt things would get into a dreadful muddle unless she did. Speak your thoughts, human child, said the lion. I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me in Scrub, you know. It was we who asked to come here. Scrub said we were to call to, to somebody. It was a name I would not know. And perhaps somebody would let us in. And we did, and then we found the door open. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you, said the lion. So there's a whole wonderful subtext there and uh, one of the beautiful things about it and we'll close with this is Lewis's story of his own conversion and in that story you see this beautiful sort of push-pull of is it really Lewis who is searching for God or is it God who is searching for Lewis is it Lewis who is choosing to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord or is it Christ who is offering himself in such a way that he is irresistible? So this is from Lewis's autobiography. 
And he says, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears a moment of wholly free choice, in a sense. I was going up Hedington Hill on the top of a bus. Without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay, or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing, like corsets or even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door, there's the door again, or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I have ever done. Necessity may not be the opposite of freedom. And perhaps a man is most free when instead of producing motives, he could only say, I am what I do. Then came the repercussion on the imaginative level. I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. So there's going to be this whole interplay in this book of what is Aslan's will and Aslan's plan and what are the children figuring out on their own, on their quest, and are they getting it right? And if they don't get it right, are they going to be off the path forever and disaster and damnation will ensue and Prince William will die and all of Narnia will be crushed? Or will somehow they work it out? But you'll have to come back to find out about that. <laughs> so... Um, some questions for reflection. I wish we had time to talk about these, but um, do think about these. They'll be in the PowerPoint when I send the email out. So in what ways might we, even as Christians, live an experiment house today in terms of our own beliefs and our behavior, i.e., to what extent have we bought in to the relativism and progressivism um, like the frog and the kettle syndrome. Do you know the frog and the kettle story? Yeah. Second thing to think about, what would be some of the good reasons Eustace could have used to rationalize not speaking with Jill in the first place, just ignoring her while she sat there crying? Or even more so, what reasons might he have had that sounded really good for not being vulnerable with Jill? How does self-protection sometimes block our ability to live out God's will for us. And then thirdly, why does Eustace cite specific examples of his having changed when he's talking with Jill? Is he bragging? Why is his behavior relevant to his change of heart? And what can we learn from his example in our own lives? So there's a lot to think about right there. So um, let me close this with a word of prayer. Thank you for your attention. Father, we thank you for this glorious book. We thank you for the wonder and joy 
that is portrayed in it, especially in the presence of Aslan. But Lord, we also thank you for the portrayal of the dark and grim despair that grips so many young teenagers. Lord, we pray that you would help us as the church to surround those who are hurting in this world. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the attacks that are on the things of your kingdom and our culture and to not just fold and hide, but to boldly go forth knowing that you are by our side. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to serve you with all of our heart, that we might come to the joy of your kingdom. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here.